0: Thanks, Jan. So um, today we're starting on this um, six-week series in the Psalms, and uh, we're going to be using that uh, both for preaching and for the focus groups over this little period of time. And thanks particularly to uh, Gordon McCracken, because Gordon's the person who has prepared the material for the focus groups. By the way, um, I don't know whether um, Mariah's going to say something about focus groups, but let me just say it anyway. Um, If you are in a focus group, then that's great. If you're not, and you would like to be, then Martin Russell, who's going to stand up and do a little twirl, (laughs) is the person to speak to. Oh, thank you, yes. Okay. Uh, And in addition to that, uh, we have an online focus group, and Miriam is organizing that. If you want to be part of that, then uh, please speak to Miriam. So uh, you can be in a focus group without leaving the comfort of your own home. And if you know how to put the camera off, you can even do things when, uh, you know... (laughs) on the side. However, that's the focus groups, uh, and we're going to be, over this next six-week period, looking at some of the the psalms. If if you look at the um, anything online, really, that talks about which the most popular books of the Bible are, it will almost always have the psalms near the top of that list. And the reason, of course, for that is, is, is fairly plain and straightforward. It's because The psalms deal with the breadth of human emotion and circumstance. They express both inward private thoughts and feelings, and they uh, give voice to public um, emotion and publicly expressed words. You find in the psalms the depths of despair and the heights of joy. There is overwhelming discouragement there, and overflowing praise. So there's a whole slew of emotion in the Psalms. Today is another day on which, as a congregation, this is a kind of an emotional day for us because this is the first Sunday that we've met after we discovered about Tam Stevenson's sudden death. And there have been quite a lot of those, haven't there, recently? Emotional days, I mean. And one of the things that I really come to value, I think, more than perhaps I did previously, was the way in which um, coming together and sharing those emotional times together helps. It certainly helped with Ian Harris' death, didn't it? Uh, I think we we found out about that on the Saturday and then on the Sunday when we came together and uh, of course Malcolm McPhee organized for some of the the BB folk to come around and just the, the being together with other people to express emotion is important finding communal expression for powerful emotions that's really helpful and that's what the psalms do, actually. They give us a way, communally, of expressing those emotions. The word psalmos is a Greek word. It originally meant, actually, the uh, musical accompaniment, I think, to, uh, to words. And so because of the musical accompaniment, it, the, the meaning is extended to the words. And it's interesting that it has to do with music, I think, because... Music is the thing, of course, that speaks directly to our emotions, isn't it? Without any intervening intellectual activity, <laughs> if I can put it like that. And actually, you know, you see that, don't you, when the bands start up, you know, and, and people start to get a bit uh, into it. And, and what that is is, is, is music that, that communicates directly into our emotions. And we need that, actually, we need it and um, perhaps we need it particularly in the Presbyterian tradition (laughs) because our tradition values intellectual understanding and that's good I'm not rubbishing that in any way or or shape or form it it values intellectual understanding but there is alongside that there needs to be an emotional engagement with it too doesn't there because otherwise it's all up here and none of it's in here. And actually, at at its best, Christian faith is expressed both in intellectual understanding and in emotional understanding. And I think that's what the Psalms do. They allow us to uh, see both the emotional side of faith as well as the intellectual side of it. Andrew Rooney, when he was preaching a couple of weeks ago from Psalm 27, said... The Psalms teach us how to feel. Actually, I think I would express it slightly differently. I think what I would say about it is that the Psalms give us a vocabulary to express our feelings, because the feelings are there. It's just that we don't always know how to express them or have permission to do that expression. And particularly strong feelings that we, we are a bit suspicious of sometimes, aren't we? I mean, take anger, for example. In uh, the family in which I grew up was a a stable, happy, supportive, loving family. I was very blessed in the family in which I grew up. One of the things, though, about it was this, that it offered me few clues how to deal with anger. And if there was an unspoken message about anger in, in my family it was that anger should not be spoken about. And I think that made it hard for me to deal with anger in my adult life. My own anger or the anger of other people. I used to be very scared of anger. I don't know whether you (laughs) identify with that. But I was was scared of my own anger. And I was scared of, of the anger of other people. And I think that came from a a place where actually anger was not really spoken about and there wasn't uh, much permission. That is not the case in the Psalms. (laughs) You know, there are numerous references to anger in the Psalms. God's anger and our anger with God. How about Psalm 13? How long, O Lord, will you uh, forget me? forever? How long will you hide your face from me? Is that anger? Or is it despair? I'm not sure. But it, it's certainly a very powerful emotion, isn't it? Being expressed towards God. And that's what the Psalms do. They give us permission. They offer us a vocabulary to express our own strong feelings. And that is I think a healing thing for us. So over the next six weeks we're going to have a look at, at a number of these different psalms and this Psalm 8 is the one we're starting with and you might describe that as a psalm of praise but actually I've for want of a better um, title called it a psalm of surprises and the first surprise is this God has a name what's God's name? There it is sometimes written like this That's really helpful, isn't it? (laughs) (laughs) Technically, that is called the Tetragrammaton, which simply means it's four letters. (laughs) And it's really interesting, actually, this name. Um, It's rendered into English either as Yahweh or as Jehovah. But... um, English translations in the, in the scriptures don't have that, most of them, some occasionally they do, but most of the, uh, the translations don't use those words. What they use is this word, Lord. And you'll notice that that Lord is in capital letters. And that's, if, you, if you've got your Bibles, you'll see that that's what's at the beginning of Psalm 8. O Lord, our Lord... The first one's in capital letters. And, and what's actually in the Hebrew text is these letters, obviously in Hebrew, not in English, <laughs> but YHWH. And that is God's name. And, but what happened when, the, if these scriptures, the Old Testament scriptures, are being read by a Hebrew speaker, when they got to this word, this name, YHWH, they didn't even attempt to pronounce it. They simply said Adonai, which is the Hebrew word that means Lord. By the way, they, the reason that they, it looks so impossible to pronounce is because in ancient Hebrew they didn't put the vowels in, which makes it a bit like uh, Gallic. you know. You've got these string of consonants and you have no idea what it says. But ancient Hebrew didn't have any vowels. It had, it had little marks on the text that put the vowels in. So this word, this name, Y-H-W-H, is what is there. And it's there in the text of the Old Testament scriptures about 6,000 times. And every time in the English translation that word occurs, that name occurs, what you get is Lord in capital letters. So what, that's, that's telling you that it's the name of God in the text there. Why did they treat this name of God with such awe and reverence that they wouldn't even say it? Why did they do that? Well, one of the reasons is that this is the covenant name of God. It's the name that God gave to his people the one that he chose, the people among whom his name was to dwell, it is not for anybody and everybody to use. This is the covenant name of God given to his covenant people. And so, for example, it occurs in Exodus 3, you'll remember that's the passage about the burning bush, and God is sending Moses to lead the Hebrew slaves out of slavery, and Moses says to God, what am I going to say if they ask me who sent me? And in Exodus 3.15, God tells Moses, say to the Israelites, the Lord, the God of your fathers has sent me, and that's this this word, capital letters, Lord, L-O-R-D, and and what's in the Hebrew is these four letters, Y-H-W-H. It's the covenant name of God. God has a name. And here's another surprise. This covenant name, this name, for God revealed to his chosen people is so special that it cannot be spoken, is majestic, not only for the Hebrew people, but in all the world. Lord, capital letters, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. One day, everybody will know God by name. That's what this psalm is promising us. That's the first surprise. Then second surprise is this. Worldly power is ineffective. From the lips of children and infants you have ordained praise because of your enemies to silence the foe and the avenger. When I was a stroppy teenager, I used to have long hair hard to believe now <laughs> not very much left at all but there you go and in those days it was quite fashionable to have a copy of Chairman Mao's little red book remember that? with its vinyl cover, red vinyl and if you wrote to the Chinese embassy they would, they would send you one and quite a lot of stroppy teenagers decided that that's what they wanted to do and one of um, Chairman Mao's things is this, that power proceeds from the barrel of a gun. Now I was far too young and naive to really understand what that meant at that time. But it could stand alongside the saying might is right, couldn't it? To represent what worldly power means. Because worldly power basically means the ability to force my will on you with violence, if necessary. That's what worldly power is. And this psalm says something very different. It says, The praise of infants silences the avenger. It turns worldly power on its head. It says, What looks like weakness subverts and destroys worldly power. One of the astonishing things about the kingdom of God that's revealed through Jesus and right through the scriptures is that it turns upside down, inside out, any notion of what power is about. This is one of the verses that's key. First Corinthians 1.27 God chose the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. God chose the weak things of the world to shame the strong. And one of the surprises that comes out in this psalm is that that sense of humility and weakness, the praise of infants, destroys worldly power. Third surprise is this. Humankind, mankind are insignificant. When I consider your heavens, what is mankind, that you are mindful of them? You know, I've long had a fascination with cosmology. I don't really understand it, but I I find it fascinating. The numbers are mind-stretching, aren't they? You know, well, let's start with the, um, you know the green comet thing that's in the news at the moment? The last time it was visible on Earth was 50,000 years ago. (laughs) You know, there were woolly mammoths and Neanderthals wandering around. And none of us are going to be here again when it comes back again. 50,000 years it's taken for that thing. I mean, look you know at the buses. 50,000 years. <laughs> but they, that's peanuts, actually, in, in terms of um, cosmological numbers. Our star, the sun, of course, is, is the center of our solar system and our sun is part of the Milky Way galaxy, that's our galaxy, there are about 100 billion stars in our galaxy, the Milky Way. And they reckon apparently that there's about 150 billion galaxies out there. Our intergalactic neighbour is the Andromeda galaxy, That's the nearest galaxy to the Milky Way. And uh, you can just about see that, actually, with the naked eye. It's a little sort of smudge in the the night sky. Just about see it. It is two million light years away from us. That's to say, it takes two million years for light to get from the Andromeda galaxy to us. And the speed of light, if I remember right, is three times ten to the eight meters per second. I'm getting a nod. Thank you very much, Greg. <laughs> that's a long way away. And that's our nearest galaxy of the 150 billion that are out there. And not only that, the universe, all these galaxies, are actually moving apart from each other all the time. Somewhat to the consternation of physicists, actually, because they thought that perhaps galaxy w- gravity would mean that they would come back again. Well, that's—we're we'll not getting to that. <laughs> but they're, they're moving apart, you know. And one of the things that's always puzzled me about that idea of an expanding universe is, what's it expanding into? You know, <laughs> where's it? Where's it going? I don't know if you've you've caught it, but there's a really interesting program on on BBC Four at the moment. You can get it on iPlayer if you can't, if it's not on schedule. And it's Jim Al-Khalili. And he's a professor of physics or something or other, I think. Um, And it's called The Beginning and the End of the Universe. And that idea, you know, that 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 universe of 150 billion galaxies that's spreading out all the time started in... Well, I think, I think physicists call it a particularity. You know, at the beginning of time, there, was, there wasn't anything there. And then it, it sort of started. <laughs> and it's been, it's been expanding ever since. And it's always seemed to me that that's pretty close to the Christian doctrine of creation ex nihilo, which is creation out of nothing. That this universe... Came to be in that way. And when you try and grapple with that, what happens is you realize the insignificance of humankind. (laughs) What is mankind that you are mindful of them? They are insignificant. But the fourth surprise is this humankind are significant. You have made them a little lower than the angels and crowned them with glory and honor. This God, this God who has a name and whose fingerprint is on a universe of expanding galaxies, give the place of honor to you and to me. (laughs) As they say in America, pardon me. So, this psalm is saying something, well, it's saying two things really about when we look up into the night sky. If we try and comprehend the vastness of the universe, humankind is insignificant, and men and women, and youngsters, and children are incredibly significant. In God's um, way of measuring things, we are at the top of the list of importance. Okay, fifth surprise is this we have a responsibility. You have put everything under our feet. We have responsibility for flocks, herds, beasts, birds, fish, the whole shooting match. How are we doing with our responsibility? Not very well. It's interesting, isn't it, that this came up a few Sundays ago when we were looking at that whole business about what metanoia meant, going beyond, and it included more grace for the planet. To be made ruler over the work of God's hands does not mean that we're given free rein to exploit the resources of our planet until they are exhausted. Historically, that's what we've done. really is, isn't it? It means, I think, that we are to care for the planet, the creation, in the way that God cares for it. We are to exercise responsibility in God's Place We are in loco parentis for the planet. There was a Christian aid slogan a few years ago that really stuck in my imagination, and it was this, live simply that others may simply live. And we could tweak that slightly and say, live simply that the planet may simply survive. What do we need to do? We need to not buy more than we need, even if we have the money. We need to, if we can, travel by rail rather than by air. It means all sorts of things, doesn't it? Will that restrict our lifestyle? Yes, it will. Why should I do that? Because I have a responsibility not just to exploit the earth's resources so I can enjoy myself, but to care for creation as God cares. And lastly this. God has a name. (laughs) So this psalm ends where it began and verse 9 is the same as verse 1. Lord, capital letters, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. And we know because... We stand on the other side of the events of the New Testament that God not only has a name, but He has a face. And it's the face of Jesus of Nazareth, the one who was made flesh for us, the one who takes on that majestic name, that name that is beautiful. In all the Earth, there is no other name given under heaven by which we must be saved. From Acts 4:12. "Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. Let us pray.